How bad was it really that God had to send these, these prophecies and these warnings through Isaiah that are pretty doomsday-ish, that are pretty severe? How bad was it? As we opened up into, finally, chapter one of Isaiah, we talked about how it sounded a little bit like a courtroom and, and this indictment is coming against God's children. So we started learning, first of all, that they're rebellious. Simply put, that they are rebellious, that they have forsaken God. And we looked, just simple observation, at all the different words that Isaiah uses to try and make his point, And we noticed how strong his language was. He says, ox and donkeys, like simple, dumb animals, ox and donkeys, they know their owner. But my children, they don't know me. The children that I raised, they, they don't even know me. How bad is it in this time? Oh, they don't just have an injury from sin. The, the children of God, they don't just have an injury from it. They have a disease from it. And it's coursing through their veins. And it's affecting every system, every part of their body. We read that it is affecting them from head to soul, wounds that are not getting better, that are not being treated. That's how bad it is. So then the consequences that we read about right away, talk of exile, that idea of being away from home, simply put, this idea of being estranged children. So once again, that, that familial language, this word estranged is so strong and, and pulls up so much emotion. It's this idea of losing, having distance where there was once closeness, losing closeness with what was once an intimate relationship. At one point, the, the children of God are called my people, and it's not even a chapter later before they are called my foes, my enemies. That's how bad is it? And we looked at this question, how bad is it going to be if they continue to rebel? And there's this interesting play on words in chapter 1, verse 20. He says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten. You shall be eaten by the sword from the mouth, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Eat or be eaten is what Isaiah is laying out. And what you will be eaten by is the sword. And where does the sword come from? The mouth of the Lord. It's the Lord's sword that is going to bring this discipline. Guys, this is how bad it is as we started our homework this week. And we called this chapter Hope in Judgment. How could God be so harsh? Is that not the question that we felt as we read this? Or if not us, that somebody else maybe that we were, that were close to would ask, how can God be so harsh is our question. How could a loving father, he makes it clear that he is father, how can a loving father turn his hand against his children? And furthermore, maybe you noticed that the system that God built, that he gave them to aid in their sin problems, so the sacrifices, the incense, the prayers, that system he gave them, he's now acting like he doesn't even want it anymore. Did you catch that? He says, I've had enough. I've had enough of your prayers and your trampling of my courts. How could God be so harsh? We're probably all assuming that this is a rhetorical question, right? 
It sounds more naturally like a rhetorical question, but it's not for tonight, at least. Guys, I actually think that we can kind of bravely begin this conversation of, of answering that question because I think that part of, of where we're going to find an answer is seeing that because of who God is, there is hope and judgment. It comes down to who God is. So just like we saw last week with God's holiness, this week we're going to take a look at God's justice. What difference does it make that God is just? This, this sense of rightness. It's not that he does justice or enacts justice. It's that he is just in his very core. That's who he is. And I think so often we misunderstand what this really means. And that's why we get stuck fearing that God is harsh and nothing but wrath. But guys, what I think is actually true about justice, and we talked about it in our previous studies, is that true justice stems actually not from wrath, but from love. True justice stems from love. It's God's love that prompts him to act in justice. Do you see that? It's his kindness that brings people to repentance. And guys, I think that a just God, maybe not at first, but if we really study it, if we really think about it, we would see that a just God is the kind of God that we want to serve. And that we would actually have no interest in serving any other kind of God. And we would go even further and say that this is the kind of figure that we want to call Father. What at first seems to have a lot of teeth in it, this description of God as just, is actually a great, great comfort to his children. That his love prompts him to act in justice. What kind of father, what kind of king would turn his eyes away when an injustice is being done? That doesn't bring us any comfort. We don't want to follow that kind of king. We don't want to be in that kind of family. But a being who is, is so full of love and mercy that it prompts him to respond in justice and at times in his wrath is actually the exact kind of God that we want. But guys, isn't it still kind of hard to stomach this text? Isn't there still more layers of this? If we're really honest, we're like, okay, I get that. That sounds good. That sounds right. But still, this isn't the kind of stuff I want to sit and talk to my non-believing friends about. Or maybe I'm brand new in the faith and I'm about done <laughs> with this book of prophecy. So let's keep going there, guys. If it's hard for us to stomach, let's say, why, how can we be okay that God would allow his children to be overtaken by evil nations? An evil nation that will enslave them, that will march them away as exiles. This is where I found myself needing more study. I found this last week that it was helpful as I went and got some more specifics on the rebellion of God's children. Rather than just saying, hey, they were rebellious, they forsook the Lord. I needed to kind of go into narrative mode to, to understand exactly how bad they were. And so I found, I found myself in 2 Kings. So, so far we've talked a lot about King Uzziah. And this week we were talking about King Ahaz, who I believe is his grandson. And what we find out about him, he's, he's very quickly classified as an evil king. Um, some of the things that he's most well known for is that he... Uh, likely sacrificed at least one, if not multiple, of his sons. And when I say sacrifice, I really mean murder. 
He threw his son in the fire to be burned alive in hopes of appeasing a false deity named Moloch, who was a Canaanite idol. This is what Ahaz was known for. As I kept digging in, I I started to use uh, this theme of trees, as you guys I know are loving drawing trees all over your ESV journal. And so I used, when I was starting to feel myself get stuck in these dark pages of Isaiah, I'd let the, the, the theme of trees kind of pull me through. And so I want to see if that will help us understand some of the low points in the text this week. So still in 2 Kings, guys, listen to what we read about this king uh, who Isaiah is, uh, is, is serving under, is living under. It says in, in 2 Kings 16.4, Ahaz sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Okay, I've probably read over that a handful of times, but let's slow down a little bit, guys. What's actually going on here? This description is more than just saying there's this one-off sin by Ahaz where he kind of took like religion into his own hands, where he offered a sacrifice somewhere other than the temple. Remember how we've been talking about the temple? That's not all that's going on here. It's not just that Ahaz didn't want to go all the way back into the city of Jerusalem, into the temple to bring a sacrifice. There's a lot more here. So let's look at this. What this actually means is that King Ahaz, the leader of God's people in the kingdom that was supposed to be at least a little bit better than the Northern kingdom. What he's doing guys is consistently practicing pagan worship. It means that he would go to the garden tops. He would go to the top of hills where they would have gardens, where the trees would more likely grow in the Middle East, and he would deliberately disobey God as he practiced pagan worship. And what we need to understand that we can miss in our culture now is that trees were a really big deal in in ancient times. Trees were often seen as sacred. And specifically in the Bible, they're this huge theme where so often they symbolized life. And right away, you're probably thinking of some common texts that talk about trees. You're thinking about well-known trees in the Bible. They would symbolize life and often symbolize communion or nearness with God. So when we read these chapters and we marked up these pictures of trees, guys, and we started to see that Isaiah, that God through Isaiah was actually likening people as trees. But we read in chapter 10 that the trees are withered, They're like a garden without water. What we're doing is we're getting a visual. We're getting an image of what sin has done to these people. We're getting an image of how very rebellious that they are. There's kind of a funny couple verses still in chapter one that talked about trees and and we marked it. But listen to what it says here. Now that we know what's going on with King Ahaz, Listen to what Isaiah says. It's it's so poetic. He says in verse 29, For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And it keeps going. The, The theme keeps going. And the strong shall become tinder. Tinder, just like kindling to start a fire. Smallest little form of a tree. And his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Isn't that odd? But listen to that. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. Think of King Ahaz going to those 
hills, those gardens, those trees, and practicing pagan worship. You shall blush. You shall feel shame, is what he's saying. You will feel shame for the gardens that you have chosen. He's saying, Isaiah's saying to, to Ahaz and everyone who identifies with him, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? Why are you shaking your fist at the heavens and leading everybody around you in rebellion? But doesn't it also sound a bit like Adam and Eve? Doesn't that take us a little bit back to Eden? Because there they are at a tree, rebelling against God's word, doubting that God is good, shaking their fist at the one restriction he gives them, and then leading the entire human race into rebellion, rebellion, estrangement, and exile. Both scenes, Adam and Ahaz, both representatives of a people, failing a test of trust at a tree. How bad is it? How bad was it in Isaiah's day, guys? As we read in chapter 10, we, we found that the promised land was to be cut down. So like, like a forest, it was going to be cut down. And the consequence is that God was going to hold an ax. This gets pretty vivid. God is gonna hold an ax above his children. And that ax is Assyria. So guys, we gotta go back. Why is this a big deal? We're saying, how bad is it if now the people and the land are being talked about as if they will be no more? Do you remember? We went back to Genesis 12. We went back to the covenant. The promises of God are built around this promise for a people and for land and for God's blessing. Do any of those things sound like prevalent themes in our text this week? Where are the people if they're gonna be deported? Where, where is the land if we're being told that they're gonna be taken away and that they're gonna be cut down? That's how bad it is, guys, that the very covenant seems to be in jeopardy. And so the consequence is that God is saying there will be an enemy from a foreign land. And I am holding that country like an ax in my hand. So let's, let's also take a moment and actually think about this detail. When we think about Assyria being an ax in God's hand, when I think an ax, when I think of a saw, I'm thinking massive cut downs, right? I'm thinking indiscriminate destruction, just big old whacking, right? Big, massive cuts, mass amounts of damage, life cut down in an instant. This is some of Isaiah's most powerful and most compelling poetry in this whole book, I feel like. And so go there, guys. He's using poetry so that this hard book will come alive to us, guys. Picture what was a once green and flourishing forest now flattened down to the stumps where you used to see green, where you used to feel coolness from shade or comfort. Now it's just acre after acre of stumps. He even used this description of them being burnt stumps, stumps smoldering from being burned by fire. That's how bad it is. And we called this chapter Hope in Judgment. Where is the hope? How could God 
be so harsh? It's not a rhetorical question. So let's go back to what can we learn about God? We see God's justice, but in chapter 10 and going into 11, what else do we see, guys? We're building this list, right? This working list, God's holiness and God's justice. And what I think we see here is his sovereignty. So let's look at that, guys. At this point, I feel like we have to look kind of closely. It's not just laying out there. It's kind of discreet. But I do think that there is hope in chapter 11 in a couple different places. Because part of what I wanted to draw out the, in the homework and this this thought of God holding Assyria like an ax is he is showing that Assyria is not in control. What he is saying, guys, is that Assyria has not usurped God. There wasn't this big knockout punch by Assyria or any other foreign land that left God on his backside and out of control. God is saying, oh, no, 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 I am still on my throne. Wait a minute, where have we already seen that? In the vision. Did not, did not Isaiah learn that in the vision that he saw, oh yeah, this time of instability, there's gonna be a transfer of power. King Uzziah has died. Everything feels like it's shaking from under me. But the God was on his throne. Here's the same lesson again. It seems like Assyria is in control. There's all these threats going on. There's all these other countries ganging up on us. The future is super uncertain and we've got this bad feeling that it's because of our sin. It seems like Assyria has the upper hand, but Assyria has not overcome. Assyria, just a pawn in God's hand. Just a tool to be used for God's purposes. And then we read that once he has used evil Assyria and and later Babylon to bring his restorative discipline, he's going to turn and bring his justice against them. So much that we could talk about here, guys. But I think for tonight, our hope in this moment is to see that God is in sovereign control. No matter what life feels like. No matter what evil seems to be having free reign in our world, whatever injustices, we need to see that God is still holding all things together. That God is the glue. That God has the whole world in his hands. And then live accordingly. Which may be the most low-lying fruit for our application at this point, guys. Could we just pause and talk about how it's an invitation for us to say, I'm not holding all things together. It's not my job. I'm not the glue that holds all things, all tasks, or all people together. I'm not God. He is high and lifted up, so high above us. There is none like him. And guys, in a book that is heady, in a book that can be hard to read, take a moment and exhale into that comfort. I feel like I end up bringing this up every study because I need to learn it over and over again. That's his job to hold all things together. That's his job to sit on the throne. I need to get my butt out of that throne. 
and get ready to serve, get ready to worship. But that pressure, guys, that we feel with our jobs or our families to spin all the plates, to be everything to everyone at all times, that pressure, it's not meant for us. Pressure does not befit God's saints. And that's who we are. So would you backtrack with me? Would you identify the areas of your life that you feel pressure? Instead of saying, I got this. Go like this. Step back. You're not God. Rejoice in the fact that he's on his throne. That he has no limits. And then watch as you feel freed up. Watch as you breathe a little easier. Watch as more joy comes, as mood swings lessen. And live in the freedom that comes from knowing that God is the sovereign king. Guys, isn't it so interesting that Isaiah was so well acquainted with disappointing kings? Right, think of the two kings we've talked about so far. From Uzziah arrogantly entering into the temple, not upholding God as holy, holy, holy. And now this week, Ahaz taking it even further, as if pagan worship wasn't enough, murdering his own son to appease a pagan god. He also replaced just one political crisis with, with, with another as he failed to trust God. Isaiah and his, the people around him, his kinsmen, They needed a better king, didn't they? They needed a better representative. And I'm going to give you a moment because I know you know where I'm going. Because this isn't a women's event where you're just going to trust everything I'm saying, right? This is Bible study. It's so much better because you guys have been in the word all week. And so you see where I'm going right now. And that doesn't even make me afraid that you're going to zone out. It actually makes me more excited. Where are we going when I say that Isaiah and his people needed a better king, that they needed a better representative? We see it from this little summit in the book of Isaiah, from the book of judgment even. We see what Isaiah is showing us, don't we? We look into the New Testament story, a story that's taking shape from Isaiah's prophecy We look 700 years ahead from the time of Isaiah, from the time when this root of Jesse was talked about, this time when a remnant from David's family tree was talked about. And what do we see? We see a beloved son who takes on exile so that a rebellious children can be brought near. See, a beloved son a a perfect child with no rebellion who knows his father and who is faithful to God. And we see that beloved son leave his promised land, if you will, at the right hand of his father. And we see him, once an adult, pass a test in a garden, even. In the garden of Gethsemane as he bowed his kingly knee before 
his father. And lest we miss it, guys, we take note the very symbol of the curse from Genesis 3, the thorns were placed on his kingly head, showing us that he would take our curse. And lest we miss it, we take note of the sword that guarded Eden. That sword, that sign of judgment that guarded the way back into Eden as if saying, oh no, you cannot come back in until someone goes under the sword. And we see it as Jesus is side is pierced and outflows water and blood. And we take note that it wasn't actually the sword of Rome. It wasn't the sword of Assyria, but it was the sword of God's wrath. Ladies, what do we see from this summit? We see a better king on the hill of Golgotha. We see our better king pass the test of the tree when he was willingly hung on the cross. And now we see easily that indeed there is hope in judgment and never more so than the judgment that put Jesus on the cross. Guys, our story, the story of Isaiah is judgment, then salvation. Judgment and then salvation. The judgment put on Jesus brought our salvation. And that salvation becomes our story. And this is what's so good about the story of the Bible is that we have these big lofty gospel truths and then they just come right down into our Tuesday nights. We watch them just trickle down into our story right now. We see the eternal big picture hope and then we let it be our hope for today, guys. Because like so much of what God is saying through Isaiah, like a tree, we were made to flourish. We were made to bear fruit. We were made to give life. That's our good news that we want to identify with. But isn't there also a reality, guys, that often like a tree, we feel like we can be cut down. That forest that we're describing is so often a Christmas scene. This idea of a, a flattened forest. So often that's actually our reality in life. That's more what we feel like. We've got the broken relationships to show it. We've got the anxiety or the anger that just makes us feel like we are a scene of cut down, lifeless, hopeless stumps. But if this story is our story, then there is always hope. And our hope came from that root of Jesse. Our hope came from that Isaiah 11 little sprig, that thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. And so just like our hope is in Jesus, guys, we let that carry us through any and all circumstances. We let that give us strength, whether we feel it or not. And we hold on to the fact that what we are longing for, it might not come true tomorrow. It might be 70 years from now, like it was for the people in Isaiah's time. And it might not even be on this side of glory that we would have our hope become realized. Yet we are still a people of hope because we believe that God is holy. We believe that he is just. We believe that he was sovereign and we believe that he is good. 
And one final application, ladies, just to make sure that we're not leaving this in the brain or leaving this in the clouds. But we had a question this week that was looking at the difference between how the people, the rebellious people were described before the discipline of the Lord. And then how they would be if they returned, if they repented. We saw these strong use of colors. This idea that we, uh, before our sin has been dealt with, our, our sin is scarlet, but afterwards it's white as wool. And what I want to speak to you guys now is, is what I need to hear to myself all the time. Is that sometimes, for multiple different reasons, we still identify with that column on the left. Even after we're in Christ. We go through our days still thinking that we deserve the judgment of God, even though that judgment has been paid. We still identify over here. We just like hang out over here. Sometimes we, we try to just be our own Holy Spirit and punish ourselves. Okay, well, I've, I've done this or I haven't improved in this. So you know what I'm going to do? I'll isolate myself. That's it. Then I'll learn. If I can't beat this sin, I just won't go to church anymore. I just won't step out into community, into connection group. Then I'll, then I'll, I'll, I'll learn. When we identify with, with this column, we live in a lot of condemnation. And we think that the sin in our life still has the last word. And we think that our sin still has the upper hand. But does it? Because of Jesus, this is our reality, this side of that column, guys. We are saints who still struggle with sin. We are not these estranged children who are getting what we deserve. We are not these estranged children or orphans who are just getting the tar beat out of us by our sin. No, we are saints. We stand atop of our sin. We cast off the pressure. We stand in freedom. We look to serve and we worship. This is who you are, guys. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You were called to be free. Therefore, use your freedom, not to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. This is where we do life. Be done with that. Jesus has dealt with that if you are in Christ. We stand atop that sin. The, the enemy, the serpent is under our foot because he is under Jesus's foot because Jesus has shared his victory with us. So whether it is pressure or condemnation or fear, it does not befit you, ladies. Shake it off, get it off. The reality for you, ladies, is so much more like what we read this week in Psalm 1. You're not the burnt down stump. You're not the dead end stump. You are the Psalm 1 tree. The promise for me and for you is that, guys, we are a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. Whatever we do prospers. That's our hope. Let's pray.
Father, we love you, and we thank you for being our better king. Thank you for saving us, for knowing us, and for loving us. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need to keep on keeping on through the book of Isaiah. We anticipate the comfort that comes as we start our study tomorrow. We anticipate the joy as this book now opens up into such good news, Lord. We love you, and we love that you loved us first. Amen. Thanks, guys. See you next week. <laughs>